0: Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and to today's Thursday noon town hall forum. I am Donald Meisel, minister to and with this Center City congregation. These forums, which are free and open to the public, occur once a month during September, October, November, February, March, April. We are into our third season. We're happy for your support. Attendance has been ranging from 700 to 1,400, and it looks like we're in the 1,400 range today. Those in the radio audience should know that you are warmly invited to attend, your schedule and distance from here permitting. We present these forums because we're convinced that churches like this one have a special responsibility to look at the tough issues facing us all, and that from an ethical perspective. Let me remind that this is a public forum. The intent is to raise significant issues and to make us all think, hopefully from an ethical perspective. We perceive the written questions from the floor that follow the main presentation and the ideas that surface through that process as very integral to what happens here. Minnesota Public Radio has broadcast live and then rebroadcast these forums from the beginning, and starting today, and we're very pleased about this, we are being carried nationwide over American public radio and its large network of stations. And so we welcome our loyal local and now larger audience. Our speaker today, and that's the reason you're here, is Dean Rusk, native of Georgia, graduate of Davidson College in North Carolina, Rhodes Scholar, President of the Rockefeller Foundation from 1952 to 60, Secretary of State from 1961 to '69 under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, and since 1970, Samuel Sibley, Professor of International Law at the University of Georgia Law School. Mr. Rusk has been brought to the Twin Cities this week as a public service by the Twin Cities law firm of Briggs and Morgan in connection with the celebration of their centennial. They're also sponsoring the distribution of this program over American public radio. The University of Minnesota Law School and the Hubert H. Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs are also involved in Mr. Rusk's visit. And Westminster Church is pleased to ask and to act as host and co-sponsor here today. Arthur Schlesinger, in A Thousand Days speaks of our guest as a man of exceptional intelligence, lucidity, and control. His idealism was authentic. One felt his decency, his dignity, his durability. His speeches had the quiet authority of one who knew that he spoke for the foreign policy establishment, and unlike Secretary Dulles, he did not pretend to speak for God, too. Well, sir, we invite you to speak for yourself here today on a subject of deep concern to us all, detente and Cold War. You have a, a large and an attentive audience.
1: Send your question down, I'll be glad to comment on that. (laughs) Dr. Meisel, and ladies and gentlemen, I was complimented by your invitation to be here today for this Westminster Town Hall. I wish to reflect with you on our relations with the Soviet Union in this post-World War II period. Let us note at the very beginning that there is a very special quality about that relationship because they and we are the only two nations in the world who if locked in deadly conflict could raise a serious question about whether this planet could any longer sustain the human race. Throughout human history it has been possible for ...mankind to pick itself up out of the death and destruction of war and start over again. We shall probably not have that chance after World War III. To me, the most urgent and pressing problem before us all is how to prevent that war before it occurs. In this post-war period, public opinion and the news media have tended to swing like a pendulum back and forth between something called Cold War and something called detente. It has given rise to a series of slogans, end of the Cold War, end of detente, domino theory, all sorts of other slogans which tend to confuse more than to clarify. I would like to suggest to you that Both elements have been a part of our relations with the Soviet Union throughout this post-war period at all times. To me, the word detente means a continuing search for agreement, agreements which are in our own interest, even though they may also be in the interest of the Soviet Union. That search for agreement has been a persistent effort since 1945. It did not begin just in the early 70s when President Nixon and Mr. Kissinger were talking so much about the word "detente." For example, in 1946, the United States, the United Kingdom, and Canada took into the United Nations a plan called the Baruch Plan, under which all fissionable materials would be turned over to the United Nations to be used solely for peaceful purposes and there would be no nuclear weapons in the hands of any nation including ourselves. The Soviet Union turned that down. But let us be careful about sanctimony on that point because had the Soviet Union been the first to develop the atomic bomb and had made the same proposals in the United Nations as did we before we in this country had the so-called know-how. We cannot honestly say that the executive and legislative branches of our government would have accepted that proposal. Nevertheless, there was a fleeting moment when there was a great opportunity, an opportunity that was lost. For from that time forward, so long as the human race shall endure, its principal question will be how to keep that nuclear beast in its cage. A little later, President Truman and Secretary George Marshall invited the Soviet Union to participate in the Marshall Plan. It was the Soviet Union that walked out of a European meeting of governments to consult on how they should respond to that invitation. And when they walked out, um, they took along a very reluctant Poland and Czechoslovakia along with them. Now, we can speculate as to whether, had the Soviet Union been an active participant in the Marshall Plan, we might have had some serious difficulties in getting appropriations from the Congress, but the effort was was made. During the Eisenhower administration, we were able to achieve the Austrian State Treaty. After hundreds of negotiating sessions, a treaty which led to the removal of all of the Allied occupying forces from Austria and permitted that fine little country to move into the future as an independent, neutral member of the community of nations. During those same years, there was a brilliant piece of preventive diplomacy. I refer to the Antarctic Treaty. Under that treaty, all national claims to territory in the Antarctic were, and this is not a pun, were put into the icebox for the duration of the treaty. Arrangements were made to reserve that vast part of the world for scientific research. No military maneuvers, no weapons of mass destruction. Arrangements which permitted each one of us as signatories to visit each other's installations and activities regularly to assure ourselves uh, that the treaty was being complied with and to extend courtesies to those who were sharing that hostile environment uh, with us. A great area of the world removed from the great power arms race. Leading into the 1960s, uh, despite the dangerous crisis over Berlin in 61-62 and the extraordinarily dangerous Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy and his chief colleagues concluded that it was just too late in history for the two nuclear superpowers to pursue a policy of total hostility across the board. And so moves were set in motion which led to the nuclear test ban treaty of 1963 to a consular agreement between the two sides which makes it somewhat easier for us to give protection to American citizens traveling in each other's country to a civil air agreement which permitted uh, reciprocal flights between uh, Moscow and New York A treaty on the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons trying to halt or slow down the spread of these dreadful weapons around the world. Two important space treaties, which thus far, not would, have succeeded in keeping outer space from a desperate military race between the great powers. During the Nixon years, that effort was continued into number of trade matters. The two Germanys recognized each other and both joined the United Nations. There was a new four-power agreement on Berlin, which has tended to reduce the role of Berlin as a flashpoint of violence um, among the great powers. And so the search has continued. Now let me point out that so far as I can see into the future, I don't see a period when the Soviet Union will trust us and when we shall trust them. But that does not mean that you cannot have agreements, workable agreements, if performance can be adequately verified. For example, we don't have to sit around anxiously worrying about whether the Soviet Union is complying with the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty of 1963 because your government can tell you honestly and accurately that if they were to explode a nuclear weapon in the atmosphere or in outer space or underwater, we would know about it and could tell you about it and take whatever steps might seem to be indicated at the time. Their credit on Wall Street is good because they pay their commercial bills. If they did not pay their commercial bills, their credit would drop off. Had they not given Pan-American planes proper treatment in Moscow, we could have given Aeroflot planes uh, some rough treatment in New York. So verified performance makes it possible for there to be workable agreements among those who do not trust each other because the question of trust need not arise. Now that search for agreement has been one strand in our relations With the Soviet Union. But we and they have profound differences on a great many matters to begin with on the way in which we organize our respective societies within our own countries. Those differences have existed since 1917 but we and they have not gone to war over those differences. The more dangerous differences have to do with ideas about the shape of the world in which we live. I realize that in some quarters it's not very uh, popular these days to talk about the United Nations, but if you wish to see how the um, West in general views the community of nations, you can find a rather succinct summary of that in Articles 1 and 2 of the United Nations Charter. It's no accident because we played a major role in drafting that charter. But over in Moscow and certain other capitals, they talk about something called their world revolution, a historically inevitable world revolution. And although they claim it to be historically inevitable, they do not hesitate at times to try to give it a shove here and there when the opportunity presents itself. So there are these profound differences. Most of us are familiar with the sad story of the events between World War I and World War II, events which led my generation of students and many of you here in this audience down the slippery slope into the catastrophe of a World War II which could have been prevented. But most people have forgotten what happened just after V-J Day. The United States demobilized almost completely and almost overnight. By the summer of 1946, we did not have a single division in our army nor a single group in our Air Force that could be considered ready for combat. The ships of our Navy were being put into mothballs about as fast as we could find berths for them, and those that remained afloat were being manned by skeleton crews. Our defense budget you'll find this hard to believe these days it's a matter of public record. Our defense budget for three fiscal years, 1947, 48, 49 came down to just a little over 11 billion dollars groping for a target of 10 billion. We were for all practical purposes disarmed. During one of the wartime meetings, Mr. Churchill called Mr. Stalin's attention to the views of His Holiness the Pope on a certain point. Joseph Stalin replied, The Pope? How many divisions does he have? He looked out across the West and he saw all the divisions melting away. So what did he do? He tried to keep the northwest province of Iran, Azerbaijan, the first case before the UN Security Council. He demanded the two eastern provinces of Turkey, ours and Cartagena, and a share in the control of the Straits leading into the Black Sea. He ignored some of the wartime agreements about giving the peoples of Eastern Europe a share in determining their own political future. He supported the guerrillas going after Greece, using bases and sanctuaries in places like Albania, Yugoslavia, Bulgaria. He had a hand in the coup d'etat in Czechoslovakia. He blockaded Berlin—you remember that dramatic airlift which kept Berlin alive for several months until the matter could be resolved? He gave the green light to the North Koreans to go after South Korea. Now, the so-called revisionist historians can write until all the paper is used up. Those were the events which created what has come to be called the Cold War. I might agree with uh, our revisionist historians that we have a considerable share of responsibility for the origins of the Cold War, but for a different reason. I think it's possible that we subjected Joseph Stalin to intolerable temptations through our own weakness. When I was a student in Germany in the early 30s, I had a canoe on those lakes around Potsdam. And One day I pulled the canoe up on a little beach and went into a restaurant to have lunch. When I came out, the canoe was gone. I notified the water police and they came back about An hour later, puttering in their motorboat, towing my canoe. They said to me, here is your canoe, we have the thief, he will be punished. But we are fining you five marks for tempting thieves. (laughs) I had not tied up my canoe, locked it. I am convinced that the ordinary people in all countries Soviet Union, China, United States, wherever, prefer peace to war. But in democracies, these yearnings for peace can get full expression. And that can sometimes lead to misjudgments in other capitals about what they can do with impunity. So we have on our plate the problem of how peace-loving peoples can avoid the problem of tempting thieves. So over the years we have had a series of confrontations with the Soviet Union. More than one over Berlin, over the missiles in Cuba, over Korea, over Southeast Asia, Afghanistan, Poland. Let it be noted that these confrontations may sometimes get in the way of the search for peace, the search for possible points of agreement. For example, on a certain Wednesday morning in August 1968, we in the Soviet Union were all set to make a simultaneous and identical announcement in Washington and Moscow that President Lyndon Johnson would shortly go to Leningrad to open what later came to be known as the SALT Talks in an effort to restrict the nuclear arms race. The trouble is that the very night before, the Tuesday night before that Wednesday morning, Soviet forces marched into Czechoslovakia and it became necessary for me to telephone the Soviet ambassador in Washington and insist that he immediately tell uh, telephone Moscow and tell them not to make that joint announcement the next morning. It's somewhat ironic to recall that a few years later any possibility of getting Senate approval of the SALT II arms limitation treaty was destroyed by the movement of Soviet forces into uh, Afghanistan. And that this search for peace is now in rough waters partly because of the situation in Poland. Now, I could recite to you a litany which would make many of you just plain angry. The trouble is that anger standing alone has no future. Because at the end of the day, whatever you think about, those people over there, some of the things that they have done, some of the things they're doing now. Whatever you think about them, we and they must still find a way to inhabit this speck of dust in the universe at the same time. The relationship is difficult, sometimes disagreeable. Negotiations with them are a very different thing from negotiating with countries with whom we share common objectives, such as Canada or Britain or many others that I could name. It takes exceeding care, precision. It takes persistence over a period of time. But nevertheless, the effort, in my judgment, uh, has to be made. I would hope, for example, that we could find some way to reach a verifiable agreement with them on putting some genuine limitations on the nuclear arms race, and for that matter, on the scale of of conventional forces that confront each other there in the heart of Germany. We already know that there are more megatons than we can endure. We remember Henry Kissinger's remark once, for which he had his ears roundly boxed in some circles, that there comes a point where discussion of superiority or inferiority has no meaning because there is common calamity awaiting us all. Now, if that be true, surely, surely, we must consider how many are enough. But it is not an easy negotiation. Rapidly increasing sophistication in technology makes verification increasingly difficult. One reason why we were disappointed in 1968 that we could not get the talk started then was that if we could have moved then with the Soviet Union, the state of the multiple warhead technology, the so-called Merv technology, was at such a stage that it might have been brought out under control. But the delays in getting back to that matter meant that that horse is now largely out of the, out of the stable. I will tell you frankly that if we could find some way to verify against hiding these warheads away in salt mines in Utah or Siberia or the Yunnan province of China, I personally would go for zero nuclear weapons tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Because in terms of the safety of the American people, which must be a major object of policy, it seems to me that we are less safe today than we were before these weapons were invented. But I cannot conceive of any method of verification which would make such reductions possible. Indeed, I don't see how we can proceed on the basis of limiting warheads as such because of the difficulty of verification. So we've been concentrating, as some of you know, on delivery systems which are much more available to processes of our verification. Beyond that there are some great issues affecting the entire human race which involve them just as much as they involve us where we and they have a common interest simply because we both are a part of homo sapiens. I think of the possibility that our race can inflict irreparable damage upon this thin biosphere around the surface of the earth in which we must all survive, the environmental issues. I think of the population explosion before these... um, Students of today get to be by age. They face the prospect of from 12 to 15 billions of people on this planet with enormous implications for food and housing and medical care and jobs and education and public health and all the rest of it. And because of the explosion in world communications, uh, one can predict with reasonable accuracy that large numbers of people simply are not going to starve peacefully. That one of the oldest causes of war in the history of the human race, the pressure of people upon resources, is being revived in a world in which there are these dreadful nuclear weapons lying around. I would hope that we in the Soviet Union could Put our, our heads together along with many other governments in the world to work at some of these common human problems. For example, last year the Center for Disease Control in this country and the World Health Organization were able to announce that smallpox has disappeared from the human race. This great killer of mankind has gone. It's a dramatic story which has not been told. There for the asking, for anyone who wants to pick it up. Well, that effort required a great deal of common action and cooperation among uh, nations who have the most profound differences with each other on all sorts of questions. Action by the Soviet Union as well as by the United States and by many others. The states bordering on the Mediterranean, have tremendous differences among themselves, some of them very bitter, dangerous. Yet under the leadership of the United Nations environmental program, they were able to agree on a common plan of action to clean up the Mediterranean. So there are some of these problems that can be um, set aside, removed from the stresses and strains of political conflict. The rhetorical level between uh, Washington and Moscow has seen its ups and downs. When you look at some of the events which I have mentioned, one can understand that that rhetorical level uh, rises at times and sometimes falls. I'm concerned that at the present time The rhetorical level between Washington and Moscow has been moving up, because there is always the possibility that one side or the other will begin to believe its own rhetoric, and then we shall find ourselves in a very dangerous situation. My hunch is, for example, in Moscow these days, as they approach a transition of leadership, that their own military finds itself in a position of enhanced influence within their government, simply because no new leadership is going to be able to take charge without the approval, at least the consent, of the Soviet military. In our own country, um, we can almost plot in this post-war period the way the rhetorical level moves up when we are considering our defense budgets just follows in a sort of cycle. And at a time when um, we're asking the Congress for substantially increased defense expenditures, the rhetorical level has uh, tended to rise. There also is a difference between the kind of words we use in such things as political campaigns and the decisions that have to be made by those holding responsibility in the real world. Any new administration, whatever it is along the way, has to grapple with the difficult transition from campaign rhetoric to the responsibilities of office. Fortunately, over a period of time, most of them make that transition. I'm not pessimistic about these matters in the long run. I was very much involved in the most dangerous of all crises we've had when the two nuclear superpowers were at each other's jugular veins in the Cuban Missile Crisis. I know that both in Washington and in Moscow we had a chance at that time to look down the cannon's mouth and neither side liked what it saw. I think both sides came out of that crisis somewhat more prudent than they were before. The trouble is that memories are short, and there is some danger that we can forget the impression we had that we must do all that we can to prevent such crises because they are so utterly dangerous. I do not agree with a lot of the talk going around these days about doomsday. I think it's sheer nonsense. Last August 9th was the anniversary of the dropping of the second atomic bomb on Nagasaki. And that was noted here and there in different places around the country. But from what I have seen and heard, I have not seen anyone in Western Europe, North America, Japan, remind us that on last August 9th we had put behind us 37 years since a nuclear weapon has been fired in anger. That is the massive fact about that day. That suggests the asset, one of the major assets on which these young people can build. That suggests that at moments of testing that The world is not full of crazies. That suggests that humankind does not really believe that we are on this planet for the purpose of reaching out to grasp the power of the sun itself to burn ourselves off of it. But it will take some doing, some restraint, some understanding, effort, perhaps at times, some sacrifice in order to work out these, um, these relationships. We can and have worked with the Soviet Union on such things as Antarctica. They and we share a common interest in trying to limit the further spread of nuclear weapons into more and more hands. And behind the scenes, there are exchanges of courtesies, which suggest that um, the situation is never quite as bad as it appears to be. Uh, with all the Cold War rhetoric, the situation not as good as it seems to some to be. Uh, when the talk is of of détente, for example. Uh, Each year, we go off our Atlantic coast to extend courtesies to Soviet vessels off our coast. Most of them, I suspect, are fishing vessels, but a few of them, I suspect, are vessels like the Pueblo. But we go out to um, take out an appendix or deliver a baby for a woman member of the crew or help them fix a rudder. And when we do, they... Their crew lines up at the rails and shout, hooray for the U.S. Coast Guard, hooray for the U.S. Navy, whoever it is. There was a time not so long ago when crazy rich people who didn't know what to do with their money would go up to Alaska and get light planes and fly out over the Arctic ice to shoot polar bear. They couldn't land and bring the polar bear back. They couldn't do anything but just kill them. In the process, they would occasionally fly over into Soviet airspace there in the Bering Strait. I had a word with Mr. Gromyko about it and tried to explain to him about these crazy rich people. I gave him my personal word that these were not CIA planes, that there were no cameras in them, and I asked him, please, not to shoot them down. And he said, all right, we won't shoot them down, but you really ought to put a stop to that that kind of thing. And indeed, we have since that time, not at his suggestion, but for other reason. But um, there are some amenities which we, I think, should observe. In the interest of us all, Mr. Andre Andre Gromyko and I uh, had to occupy adjoining diplomatic foxholes on a good many occasions and lob some diplomatic grenades at each other. We had some very serious differences. But we always treated each other with impeccable personal courtesy because if you simply get into a slanging match, you may go down to the chute into a situation that you cannot control. For example, can you imagine what might have happened had Mr. Khrushchev and President John F. Kennedy met face-to-face during the Cuban Missile Crisis? One shivers at what might have happened. So we ought not to let our deep feelings uh, get in the way of making sense wherever there is a possibility of, of making sense. And that is against the background of a people in this country, and I'm convinced of a people in the Soviet Union who would want to see us work these matters out. One cannot promise that these relationships will be easy, serene, comfortable. One cannot promise that there will not be further actions. uh, by the Soviet Union, here or there, which will deeply upset us, and some of them potentially dangerous in character. But we have to make the effort and have to keep our good sense around us. My guess is that at the end of the day we will discover that homo sapiens thinking man was accurately named. Now we'll have your questions in just a moment.
0: Thank you, you, sir. You have made us think. My suggestion is we take that brief break that we promised. Those of you who must leave may do so. Those of you who have questions may send them to the, uh, to the uh, aisles, and they'll be promptly picked up. We have, I would say, about 15 minutes for a, a question period. Let me just remind our radio audience... That you are listening to the Thursday t- noon Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. The speaker today is Dean Rusk, former Secretary of State, addressing the very serious and urgent question of detente or Cold War. In a moment, we will begin to respond to questions that are being passed forward from the floor. Uh, Russian people, I couldn't help but remember that an officer of our church returned from Moscow just recently, and he was absolutely astounded. He said they looked a lot like Minneapolis. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) But this first question, on Tuesday, voters in Wisconsin overwhelmingly approved of a nuclear arms freeze between the U.S. and the USSR. In your estimation, is a negotiated arms freeze a real possibility, given our situation?"
1: I suppose it might be possible for us to get the Soviet Union to agree on a freeze exactly where we are, although that is not at all clear. You see, um, one of the direct effects, in my judgment, of the Cuban Missile Crisis was a decision on their part to build up their missile forces. Uh, they incorrectly thought that during that crisis we had counted missiles on both sides and had decided that we had a superiority, therefore we could do what we did. That was not true. We had not counted missiles. But nevertheless, um, if you take account of planning and lead times and manufacturing, that sort of thing, a good many of the additional missiles which they have brought on stream in these recent years must have stemmed from decisions taken fairly promptly after the Cuban Missile Crisis. They have introduced uh, new generations of intermediate-range missiles aimed at Europe. And there are no comparable Western missiles of the same type pointed in the other direction. Now, I don't believe we should uh, be too cute, too exact, in trying to decide what is equivalent to what among forces that are quite different in their makeup and capabilities. I would, I think, be in favor of a standstill understanding for a short period for the purpose of permitting negotiation for a significant reduction ...but I think I would not necessarily be in favor of a permanent freeze, as it were, on exactly where we are at the present time. I'd want to know more about the views of our European allies on how they see their situation in Europe and other questions. But nevertheless, uh, I think we should be deadly serious about trying to find some way to get a ceiling on this race... ...and then, if that works, to use perhaps that same kind of formula... To bring down these weapons to the lowest level that would be consistent with adequate verification. Thank you. The next
0: question from the floor. Given your Kennedy and Johnson administrative post as Secretary of State, would you care to comment on the recent report by CBS News accusing General Westmoreland of falsifying reports of troop strength in Vietnam, thus prolonging that that war?
1: I personally was outraged by that program. Uh, The allegation was that General Westmoreland had misled, in effect, the high command, the leaders of our government, by his reporting from Vietnam. President Johnson is no longer available. I was Secretary of State during that period. CBS didn't bother to write me a letter or a postcard or give me a ring on the telephone, much less try to interview me. ...to get my reactions to this charge, although at the heart of the charge was that General Westmoreland was was misleading me, among others. We had many diverse sources of information from out there. There's one thing, I think, that perhaps muddied the water for people who, like the CBS crowd, that didn't know very much about what they were talking about. And that is that the order of battle people in Vietnam, as happens in other struggles are very cautious, conservative about certifying the presence of an actual enemy unit on the field. In Vietnam, for example, I think they required at least four independent sources of information before they would say such and such a division is here in South Vietnam. For example, prisoner interrogation, captured documents, sightings on the roads and trails, communications uh, intercept, maybe in one or two other factors, so that your official order of battle information always lags behind what you everybody knows is going on on the field. But the diversity of information we had from out there, uh, particularly in the years when General Westmoreland was in command, makes it inconceivable to me that he could have misled Washington through uh, distorting military reports. All right, sir.
0: Please comment, comes the next question, on beginning steps made by the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union toward improved relations, and if you see this as a factor in further U.S. relations with either country.
1: I suppose that I could say without embarrassment that no one now living has done um, more in the executive branch of our government to sustain the, people's, the, 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 the Republic of China on Taiwan than have I. I say without embarrassment because it's simply true. But I supported the normalization of relations with the People's Republic of China. Because during all those years when we were supporting our friends in Taiwan, they imposed upon us an impossible diplomatic burden, and that is their myth that they were, in fact, the government of all China, that they would be going back to the mainland in due course and in that effort would have the support of the United States. That got in the way of our taking steps that might have helped the Republic of China and Taiwan to find its appropriate place in the community of nations. Now, um, so let me say that I supported normalization. But I hope that we would ourselves not think that we could play games as between Moscow and Peking in some sort of triangular game of maneuver. They're much too intelligent in those two capitals to let us get away with that and I would hope that we would be too intelligent to let either one of them maneuver us over against the other. And I think we have a profound stake in their not going to war against each other. To some people, this seems to be an attractive idea. I I think it's a very bad idea. Among other things, it would be a nuclear war, and we would get our full share of fallout within a day or two from any shot fired in such a struggle. So I would hope that we would work at our relationships on a bilateral basis each with each one of them, not speculate about maneuver, and hope that they would somehow find a tolerable way to relate themselves to each other.
0: Mr. Russ, comes the next question. How would you apply what you feel to be the lessons of our involvement in Vietnam to the National Liberation Movements in Central America?
1: The objective situation in the two places, very different. Geography, location, nature of the opposition, scale of uh, the activities involved, the involvement of El Salvador, for example, in this Western Hemisphere where we have special arrangements among the organization of American states. There is some political connection in the obvious sense that there are those who are nervous about El Salvador because they do not wish to see a repetition of Vietnam. I would hope that our administration would try to work at that problem, whatever it is, and I do not have detailed information on who is doing what in El Salvador these days. They work at it through the Organization of American States. In the summer of 1964, the foreign ministers of the Western Hemisphere met to take up the problem posed by Mr. Castro's having been caught red-handed landing men-in-arms on the coast of Venezuela. No problems about the facts there. They were perfectly clear, all concerned. At that time, the OAS imposed upon Mr. Castro all of the sanctions that are available under the Rio Pact with the exception of the use of armed force But at that time they also warned Mr. Castro that if these Activities continue in the hemisphere. We do not exclude the use of armed force The Monroe doctrine has long since been multilateralized in the charter of the OAS and in the Rio Pact I would hope that we would avoid a unilateral approach to this problem and consult closely with our friends in the hemisphere and let this matter be dealt with as a hemispheric problem. Uh, During your uh,
0: statement, you said large numbers of people are not going to starve peacefully. I'm recalling that and then lead into this question that was presented. When Senator Mark Hatfield appeared here at Westminster approximately a year ago in connection with these forums, he said that the best way for the U.S. to support developing nations was to export export food production, technology, and other human services instead of arms and military technology. Would you care to comment on his perspective?
1: In general, I think I would agree with that. Um, I think we do uh, send too many arms abroad, but one has to be pretty selective and um, careful about just... How that is done. But when you look ahead, look down the road, um, there is no way in which the United States can feed the hungry people of the world. The numbers are simply beyond our reach, beyond our physical capacity to produce, and beyond our fiscal capacity to handle. I would hope that we would, however, do all that we can to assist other nations to grow more food where they are, where they live. Uh, there could be a rather astonishing increase in food production on the basis of known science and technology. If we could find ways to get that science and technology down to those in the fields who are, who are growing food, I would keep the the doors of our agricultural Universities university is wide open for foreign visitors, foreign students. I would uh, have teams available to go wherever they might be welcome to assist. I would break down the resistance to work, which you find in a good many countries where the notion is it is undignified for an educated man or woman to get their hands dirty. We send back a lot of PhDs in agriculture to the third world countries. When they get home, they want a job in the ministry or, or in a university. They don't want to get out in the fields and work with the farmers and show them how to grow more food. There are many things we, which we can do because there's one thing the United States knows how to do, and that is to grow food. And looking ahead, we can help them grow more food, but we cannot provide them the quantities of foodstuffs that would be required on a consumer level, of course we have to help in emergencies, drought, natural disasters, things of that sort. But we can't take on this burden ourselves. We we can help them. As a matter of fact, I would be willing to give a good deal of technical assistance uh, to the Soviet Union to grow more food, because looking down two, three, four decades ahead, we're going to need all the food that anybody can grow
0: a uh, one-sentence question. Do you think that the present defense budget is defensible?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that I personally would um, would go for that sharp an increase in our defense expenditures. One would have to look at it, though. It make some decisions as to just where one would... For example, uh, I'd like to know more about what they're doing now by establishing a space weapons command in the Pentagon. Up to this point, we've been able to keep out of space out of the uh, the great power arms race. Now, we, there's a good deal of talk about, you know, going up there with lasers, despite what the scientists at places like MIT and Caltech tell us about it, to go up there with lasers and try to shoot down this and that and the other for with laser technology. If we allow outer space to become militarized, just hold your hats. We haven't begun to pay taxes for astronomical defense budgets that that would involve. Mm. So I would hope that we would do our best right now to get a flat agreement with the Soviet Union that neither side is going to put any weapons in outer space. We already have an agreement that... <laughs> We already have an agreement not to put uh, nuclear weapons in orbit, so let's build on that. Uh, No, I I, I could save some money in the defense budget. (laughs) Although, as you may have gathered from my remarks, I'm very much opposed to the kind of unilateral disarmament that would tempt thieves. Mm -hmm. We've been down that trail in a major way twice before in my lifetime, and each time the results have been disastrous. Thank you.
0: <laughs> I'm going to pose one more question after I have thanked our guest for coming and to get you to postpone your final applause until he has responded to that question. But, sir, uh, I do want to thank you for coming. You've, uh, you've lived up to the, uh, the billing that we had from, from the quote early, early on. You've come with uh, intelligence and lucidity and integrity, and we value your presence. Now, this was one other question, and I sensed you responding to it in part before we came together uh, in the library, just before the onset of the program. What was your own personal feeling about the problems of decision-making during the Cuban Missile Crisis? I urge you to share something of what you shared with me earlier.
1: Well, crises of that sort... um, make pygmies of us all. Um, It's been my lot over the years to have known and talked with and worked with a good many of the people whose names you see in the headlines and in the history books. I've never met a a demigod or a superman. These are all people like all of us in this room, human beings trying to grapple with the situation in which they find themselves that was a most serious crisis because although we could, we could guess as to what the other side might or might, might not do, we could not know it. I remember, and this I think is what you refer to, Mr. Meisel, when I was a very small boy growing up in the Presbyterian Church, I memorized the Westminster Shorter Catechism. My church gave me a Bible for doing so. The first question in that catechism is what is the chief end of man? The answer in the catechism is what I would call a theological question. But during the Cuban Missile Crisis, as I was driving around Washington, seeing people on the streets, unavoidably facing the question, dear God, what are we doing to you people? It came to me with a jolt that this first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, nothing less than what is life all about, had become an operational question before the governments of the world. Now, this is what leads me to have compassion for those who are carrying responsibility. This is what leads me to believe that we must try our best to keep our cool, to restrain our passions, not to react with our glandular reaction to every piece of news that comes in because we are not here on earth to reach out and grasp the power of the sun to burn ourselves off of it. That's what the Cuban Missile Crisis meant to me.